Hey, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to the book of 2 Timothy as we continue in our study of this amazing letter from Paul to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is what we're looking at, starting at verse 14. So I was having a conversation with a member from our church who, who teaches philosophy and the Bible as literature at one of our community colleges, and, and we were talking about just the state of affairs that exists in academia and the worldviews of many of the college students that, that this person teaches on a day-in-day, day-out basis. And after talking for about 20 minutes or so, we came to the conclusion, we agreed that culturally speaking, our society is facing an epistemological crisis. Now, it's a big $10 word. Epistemology is just simply that branch of philosophy that, that deals with the issue of how you know things. How do you know what you know? How do you know good from bad, right from wrong, truth from error? How do you have certainty? And what gives you certainty about the levels of certainty by which you have certainty, right? That's a whole branch of philosophy. How do we actually know things? And in this age of uh, fake news, Photoshop, deepfake videos, how can anyone know what they see or even hear is actually the truth? Friends, where do you go to find truth, and how do you know when you have found it? I don't know about you, but I I myself, I'm exhausted by the constant social media skirmishes, the the backbiting, the the, the bickering, the politicization, or the politicalization of every conversation. It's exhausting. How do you know you're getting the truth, and how do you know if it's not fake news? Now, I know that's a, that's a, that's a common term we hear thrown around, especially in conservative circles. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to b- borrow that, but it captures the idea. How do you know you're actually hearing truth as opposed to maybe hearing error? And whatever issue it might be, from climate change to cancel culture to COVID-19 to gender equality, gun control, human sexuality, uh, all the way to racism and vaccination, the battles are endless and they can be exhausting. And people are not meeting in the middle, like I, I guess at one time on differing views, people could meet in the middle and have understanding. People are now more polarized than ever. Now that's not surprising to, to any of you here. But I do want to say something that I do think is actually somewhat surprising, and that is I don't think what we are experiencing in our polarized culture is anything particularly new. Now, 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 obviously, some of the issues are more modern than others, and, and, and our ability to participate, engage, and be exposed to it is on a level unprecedented in history. But I don't think that the core of it, that there are, if I can use the term fake news, uh, false teaching, error in society, is anything new by a long shot. As a matter of fact, fake news, false teaching, as old as the pastoral epistles we're looking at this morning. The reason I know that for sure is Paul is actually dealing with some fake news that's, that's destroying the church in Ephesus. So this morning, as we look at Paul's uh, epistle to Timothy here, we're going to be looking at that the Bible actually addresses fake news. The Bible addresses a lot of error, false teaching. The Bible tells us how do we how to navigate fake news, but most importantly, the Bible tells us what's the solution to fake news in our culture, and that is the good news. 
Now, here's my thesis, in case you didn't pick up the outline. I don't usually just put it out there, but, uh, but I want you to hear it very loud and clear. Here's my thesis driving everything I'm saying this morning. Christians can navigate a polarized culture in a world of deceit by giving the gospel our utmost affection, attention, and application in our lives. Let me say that one more time. Christians can navigate a polarized culture filled with deceit by giving the gospel our utmost affection, attention, and application in our lives. This is the significance of Paul's message in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14 to verse 26. I want to read the whole text in its entirety so you can hear it, and we're going to jump into it. So here we are, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 14, Paul writes, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, empty talk, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying, oops, there went Mesopotamia and uh, Paul's missionary journey. I got, sorry, I got to staple this back into my Bible. Um, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they only breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and come to their senses, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So let's look at these things. Three points I'm making this morning. Number one, the Bible addresses this issue. The Bible is aware of fake news, right? We typically don't call it that. We call it false teaching, but, but that's what it is. And while the phrase may be modern, it is as old as the creation of humanity. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, we hear the first fake news. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but it goes something like this. God said that? No, you won't die if you eat from this tree. As in fact, he knows if you eat from this tree, you'll be just like him. That's the first and the beginning of all fake news. That news was, hey, God doesn't need to be listened to. God doesn't need to be listened to. You can do what you want. In fact, God is holding back on you. That was the very, 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 very first fake news that ever was in this world. And friends, that is still being circulated today. As old as Genesis 3, the very first fake news, the very first deception, the very first false teaching, and it is still around today. The question is, how many of you are aware of the forms it's taking and how well are you listening to it? 
You don't need to listen to God. You can do your own thing. In fact, God's holding back on you. That's very powerful. Now, did you catch the fake news in our passage today? Did you catch that there in verse 18? Here's that fake news. The resurrection, it's already happened. People were in the church spreading deceit, lies, false teaching. They were spreading fake news. By the way, the New Testament is plagued. The New Testament church was plagued by fake news, right? So we just read some right now. 1 Corinthians 15, some people were saying there is no resurrection. 1 John chapter 1, they were saying Jesus did not come in the flesh. He was a spiritual being. 1 Timothy 4, they said, hey, you don't have to get married. We're forbidding marriage. It's wrong. Galatians 1, Paul says they had an entirely different gospel. Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus said, watch out because there will be fake Christ and there will be fake prophets. Now, you might be sitting here going, well, that's so arcane, but that doesn't have relevancy to me. Sure it does. We're seeing the same thing. We're hearing the same kinds of false teaching, the same fake news in the church today. There's no such thing as miracles that we used to believe in a resurrection, but that was because of a pre-modern time. Now that we have had the enlightenment, we understand science. We know that's impossible. It doesn't matter if Jesus was a real historical figure. So don't get all caught up on the historicity of the Bible. It's his morality and the things he stood for that's important. Hey, marriage isn't a gift from God. We can do anything we want with it. We can redefine it if we want because God has nothing to do with it. Hey, Christianity is so exclusive. The reality is there's many roads to God. And Jesus doesn't demand your obedience. He just wants you to accept him, and you can have your best life now. Friends, those are the exact same teachings we see in the New Testament. They just have more modern spins on them. The point is, fake news has been around since Genesis. It's been around in the early church. False teaching will always be around where the true teaching of the gospel exists. Fake news is always going to be trying to challenge good news. Friends, in false teaching always leads people astray. Do you see that in verse 16? Look at verse 16. Paul says, so avoid irreverent babble, or, or some translations say empty talk. You see that, that conjunction there for? So do this, and why should you do this? Well, he explains it. That's what that conjunction is. Avoid irreverent babble. Why? For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. False teaching will always lead people astray. And false teaching always distorts the way we perceive reality. Look at the very end of our text, verse 26. Paul talks about that. He says that, that they may come to their senses or come to a knowledge of the truth, depending on what kind of translation you have. They get the, the same idea. It implies, especially if it says come to their senses, it implies irrationality, right? It implies they're not thinking correctly. They're not in the fright frame of mind. Friends, the Bible is always consistent on this message that fake news, false teaching, deception, sin fogs up our thinking. It, it, makes, us, it makes us foolish. It makes us irrational. It makes us unreasonable. It makes us faithless. It makes us feckless. It, it, we're not in our right state of mind. But truth, sound doctrine, the gospel always brings clarity, not, not just emotionally, not just spiritually, psychologically, but also intellectually. The gospel brings clarity. Do, do you remember? I mean, I remember 
coming to know Christ. I was younger in life, I was 16, but I remember the clarity that I, it was like a breath of fresh air. It was like, man, I'm seeing things and understanding things in a way I'd never understood before. That's because my mind was messed up from sin. Sin has that effect on us. And the Bible's constantly telling us that there is a difference between false teaching, or what I'm calling fake news, and the truth of the gospel. Now, let's bring this closer to home, because I want to be clear on this. You might be tempted, if you are a Christian, you might be tempted to think, yeah, preach! Yeah, that, preach that stuff. All those, those secular, non-Christian types with their anti-God, atheistic rhetoric, they need to repent, right? People can tend to think that way. But you know that Paul's not talking about the world right here, right? Paul is not talking about the, the fake news, the false teaching that's in the world. That's not what he's talking about. Paul is talking about the fake news and the false teaching that is existing and spreading in the church. You see that in verse 17? He even names the guys who's spreading it, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says, they have swerved, they swerved from the truth. What's the implication? That these guys were a part of the church and they were saying, hey, the resurrection, it's already happened. Now, to be clear, right? The, the resurrection of Jesus had, in fact, happened in history. That happened many decades before these letters were written. But they were saying, the final, the great resurrection has already taken place. In other words, all the promises of salvation, all the gifts that that pertains and that's promised to you is here and now. You can have your best life now. The kingdom life is now. And friends, in a place like Ephesus, that was very wealthy, a lot of money flowing through this trade town with a lot of cultural experiences to be had, you can see how that teaching would have been very tempting. That all the benefits of the resurrection life, of the kingdom life are ours to be had. So live life to the fullest, have your best life now. Not unlike how we might be tempted in South Orange County. Heaven is here on earth, so live it up, enjoy. Seek comfort, pleasure, and ease since this is the resurrection life. This is the kingdom life God wants for all of his people. And you can see how they were tempted to buy into that. You can see how we're tempted to buy into that, that that's what God wants for our lives. But one whiff, one circumstance of suffering could challenge this whole idea and, as Paul says, upset the faith of some, which is exactly what was going on there. Wait a minute, if, if this is the resurrection life and, and I'm supposed to be enjoying everything, then and it, what is this suffering I'm enduring? This, is what, this doesn't make sense. Paul says they were upsetting the faith of some of them. Which is why in these pastoral epistles, Paul takes great effort to remind them that guys, in this life, there is suffering, there is difficulty, there is struggle, so you need to persevere. Remember what he said last week, like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. Fake news, false teaching, and the people that espouse it will always distort reality because they themselves are distorted as well. And that brings us to our second point, the actual problem with false teaching, the actual problem with fake news. Notice throughout this, these, these, uh, from verse 14 to verse 26, scattered throughout the passage is this comparison and contrast between fake news, false teaching, and truth, sound doctrine. Look at verse 14. It ruins its hearers. Verse 17, it spreads like gangrene in verse 20 to 21. This is dishonorable. It's foolish controversies. They breed quarrels, quarrels contrasted with good news. Verse 21 is honorable. 
holy, useful. Verse 22, it's full of faith, love, and peace. Verse 24, it's kind, it's patient, it's gentle. What a stark contrast. Friends, if you just want to know if your life is being influenced more by fake news, you just have to see, is my life full of controversy and quarrels? Is there constant backbiting and bickering and anger and bitterness? If you want to know if good news is filling your life, you just ask yourself, is my life more filled with gentleness and patience and kindness? And that'll give you a sense of, regardless of what you're saying with your mouth, what's actually shaping your life. Is it the fake news of the world or of worldliness, of false doctrine, or is it the good news of the gospel of grace? I love this metaphor that Paul gives in verse 17 to describe false teaching. Look at it. What's the metaphor he uses? Paul's such a, such a great preacher. It's like gangrene. Guys, do a gang, I googled gangrene images this week. Whoa, man. It's nasty stuff. It's, it's repulsive. And, and I don't think Paul was just using it for rhetorical effect. Paul viewed false doctrine. Paul viewed false teaching. Paul viewed error and deceit as repulsive, as, as gangrene. Like when, when that stuff came up on my Google screen and I went, whoa, close the browser window. Paul felt the same way when he heard error being going out in the church. Friends, do you view error about the gospel, about Christ, or the Christian life like you might be repulsed by gangrene? If not, then that means error is already doing its work in your life because it's deadening you to the danger that you are being exposed to. See, the thing about gangrene, it is not something that you get directly. Gangrene is the result of something else. And this is important because as repulsive as gangrene is, the thing that causes it is not nearly as horrific or dangerous or repulsive itself. And that's how false teaching works. It doesn't repulse you. As a matter of fact, sometimes it can even attract you. Friends, do you know what the the gangrene of the modern American church is. You know what the gangrene of the South Orange County church is today? You know, the biggest fake news that we are in danger of believing is what I call the soft prosperity gospel. Now, I don't mean the hard version that some of you are aware of, like, you know, Benny Hinn or Stephen Furtick or Joel Olstein. That, that's not what I'm talking about. You, most of you here are savvy enough to, to reject the foolishness of that, right? Oh, send me $50 and God will give you $500. That kind of hooey is ridiculous, right? Most of you are savvy enough to reject that straight out of hand. But I think what we are susceptible to is the soft version. It goes something like this. God wants me to enjoy my life. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to enjoy my marriage and my career. God wants my kids to be well-adjusted and well-liked. God's blessings will always align with my understanding of what blessed means, and God will never ask me to do something I'm too uncomfortable with. See, it's, it's a much more modest prosperity gospel, but it's a, pros a theology of prosperity nonetheless, friends. Now, let me be very clear. I want to be very clear on this. God may indeed want those things for you. Let me be clear. God may indeed want those things for you, but God has not promised any of them to you. There's a difference. God may want you to be happy. God may want your kids to be liked and well-adjusted. God may want you to enjoy your marriage. 
And why wouldn't he want those things? But I'm making the point, he has not promised them to you, and you need to understand the difference. God has not promised them to us, at least not in the way that our culture has conditioned us to think so. Never forget, when I was a, a young man, I was in China working with the Chinese church. I was thinking of giving my life to missions, and we were working with the underground church in China because it's illegal unless you're part of the, the, the three-house church movement. You, you have to be underground if you want to believe in the gospel. And so we were working with them, smuggling Bibles to the border. This is before, the, before Hong Kong transferred ownership to China. And I'll never forget, one of the missionaries somebody had framed in our little apartment that housed like way more of us than it should have, he wrote this. Of course, obviously it was written in English or else I wouldn't have been able to understand it. But this is what it was written. God does not promise you ease, but he guarantees you comfort. God does not promise you money, but he guarantees you riches. God does not promise you health, but he guarantees you strength. God does not promise you popularity, but he guarantees you acceptance. God does not promise you romance, but he guarantees you love. God does not promise you safety, but he guarantees you security. God does not promise you success, but he guarantees you reward. God does not promise you any of the things our culture makes you want, but he guarantees you all the things the Bible says you need. Do you understand the difference between the things you want and what you need? And in a culture like ours where there's affluence and all kinds of great experiences to be had, we can get very fuzzy on the issue. Friends, have some people whispered in your ear, hey, the resurrection, it's already happened. Did you believe that the kingdom life is now? Did you believe that life was ease, money, health, popularity, romance, safety, and success? Did you buy into the fake news? Like a lot of these Christians were tempted to buy into. And Paul had to remind them, and by reminding them, reminds us from 2 Timothy to suffer like soldiers, train like athletes, and work like farmers. That's not fake news, friends. But if I'm going to be honest with you, that doesn't really sound like good news either, right? I know, I know a pastor should never say that. That's what pastors should say. That, that's the good news, so suck it up and be a good moral Christian. But if I'm being honest, that doesn't sound like getting good news, but the sermon's not done yet. So let me get to the last point. We talked about the Bible recognizing the reality of false teaching and fake news. We talked about the danger of false teaching, of fake news. Now let's talk about the solution to fake news, and that is the good news. Notice again, through our passage, Paul is not only contrasting fake news or false teaching to the good news, he's also contrasting a faithful gospel life with an unfaithful gospel life, a useful life to a useless life. So, he compares Timothy to Hymenaeus and Philetus. He compares the word of truth to the gangrene of error. He, control, he, com, he compares honorable vessels to dishonorable vessels. Our text goes back and forth, back and forth. The question that begs to be answered is, how do I know that my life is being shaped by the good news and it's not being shaped by the fake news? And I believe the answer is found in three words. Now, honestly, um, as I was studying and preparing the sermon, I realized as I got to this point, I have a whole nother sermon to do on this point, and I'm not going to do that, 
But in about three weeks, we're going to revisit this. So for those of you who are note takers, I want you to take notes because I'm laying a foundation that I'm going to build upon in about three more weeks. I believe the answer to how do we know our lives are shaped by the good news and not fake news is found in three, three ways. One has to do with our affections, one has to do with our attention, and one has to do with the application. In other words, our emotions, our intellect, and our wills. Very important. Number one, our affections. How do we make sure that our lives are shaped by the good news? Our affections, the first place we need to go. Look at verse 14. When Paul says, remind them of these things, that's a key word all throughout the pastoral epistles. You remember, Paul was saying, Timothy, I remember you. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Every time there is an appeal to affections in the recalling of memory that reinforces the commitment It wasn't just, hey, remember the facts, just remember this event. It was, remember what that meant. Remember how you were affected. Remember how you were changed. It's like, you know, when you're away from your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you remember times you used to share together. It's not just some dull like, oh, I remember that evening. No, there's affection that goes with it. In verse 22, we see that. Look at the way Paul writes there. He's talking about pursuing faith, love, kindness, gentleness. Friends, these are emotive words, aren't they? Emotions are huge in being alive. Uh, you, You can make the case that people hold certain beliefs, not necessarily because of rational understanding as much as emotional attachments. That's very important. We don't want to separate the two, but more often than not, you'll find that people believe what they do because their affections are tied to it, not necessarily because they understand it entirely and can articulate a well-given response. You see that all the time. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. We just have to make sure that our affections are grounded in something that's sound. And friends, that's why our corporate services are organized the way they are. That's why before we have the preaching of the word of God, we have 30 minutes of just singing and prayer. It's so that our affections are warm, that our hearts are warmed up. That, 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 that is not the, the before the service stuff and the service, sermons, the service starts when the sermon gets preached. That's not what's going on. Adam and the team, they're not the hype men, right? To get you all excited. All right, are you ready for the sermon? And here it comes, boom. That's not what's going on. The singing is there to warm your hearts up to the things of God. Friends, music is such a gift because it combines intellectual thought. That's why the lyrics of what we sing are so important, but also with the emotion of our hearts. And it brings them together and it orients us upwards. That's why in our music, we always try to make sure that there's a Godward focus. Because we're carrying our emotions, and if we're doing it right, we're, we're getting ourselves to a place where, man, where, where our affections are tuned towards the Lord, and we're coming into his presence. Guys, if you have a problem with emotions, right? and guys, we, we pretty much do. We got like four emotions, right? Tired, hungry, angry, and sports. That's pretty much our, our four emotions. The way you grow in those emotions... The way you grow. And, and women, you, I mean, let's be honest. Okay, I'm slamming on the guys. Like, let's be honest here. Women have a, just a few emotions too, right? Irrational, shopping, beautiful, and talking. That's pretty much your thing, right? We come together on a Sunday morning 
to bring our hearts, our affections to God so that he can minister, so our affections, our affections are shaped and changed. And we have an opportunity to do that every Sunday, sometimes more than weekly. If you come to our Lord's Supper service, that time of singing is so that we can do work on our emotions to bring our concerns and worries, our excitements, our fears to God, combining them with rich theological music that reinforces truth, our affections tied to the gospel. That's all I can say on that one. I'm going to talk about that again in three weeks. Our affections are important, but I also said our attention, right? So our affections are very strong, but they have to be rooted in something, which is what we see in verse 15. What does Paul talk about? So do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. What are we doing? A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Why? Rightly handling the word of truth, the gospel, the gospel. Friends, I I mean, I spend hours every Sunday getting ready for Sunday morning, partly because I know you all work hard. I mean, let's face it, as a, as a pastor, I, I could have a really cush life. I mean, you see me Sunday for an hour and 30 minutes, you have no idea what I'm doing the rest of the week, right? I could be golfing, I could be surfing, I, I, whatever. And some do. I mean, okay, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, let me back off from that. <laughs> but I don't. Do you know why? Because I know how hard all of you work. I know what it is to work hard because I'm within a church of hard workers, But friends, the reason the gospel is so important, not just because I want to keep up with you guys because you're hard workers, so i got to be a hard worker. That's not it. But the reason we're so laser-focused on the gospel is look at 2 Timothy, one chapter before, chapter 1, verse 10, when Paul's talking about this gospel. This is what Paul says about it. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What in the world? The reason we're so laser-focused on the gospel, Paul says right here, because it's the gospel that abolished death and through the gospel, life and immortality. Now, what he's saying is that he's not saying eternal life because... The word life there doesn't mean length of time. That's what immortality means. The word life there is talking about the quality of life. Paul is saying through the gospel that Jesus secured, death has been decimated and life given to you and immortality given to you. And and I know this seems so counterintuitive because we're talking about suffering and working and training, but what we're talking about life and how does that all that work? Because the reality is we live in a fallen, broken world. And we're not always going to live here. This life is going to be done quickly. And only what we do for the gospel in Jesus Christ will last. And Paul is trying to get us to remember the the, the, the main thing. Guys, my my favorite verse in the Bible, um, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Life, pleasure, and joy in its fullness forever. If you can give me something better than the gospel to guarantee that, I'm in. The problem is nothing can do it except the gospel. Only the gospel can give that. In a world that is full of suffering and full of brokenness and full of deceit, the gospel is a laser that penetrates and says, life, joy, and pleasure right here. 
But right now, until Jesus brings it all to pass, we, we as a church, you as a Christian, we got to step up. Learn to suffer. Learn to train. Learn to work. Because all these things are worth it, aren't they? And Paul wrote to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3.15, these scriptures... Man, they're able to make you wise to salvation. So we give our full attention, our attention, our intellect to the Word of God. More on that in three weeks. So our affections, our attention, and finally, application. Super important, guys. Look at verse uh, 16. So, so Paul's laying this all out, and then in verse 16 he says, but um, avoid, do, avoid these guys, right? He says that in, in verse 23 as well. Avoid. Like the plague, in verse 23, it says, flee youthful lust. It's the Greek word fuge. It means to, to flee almost irrationally. Flee. So apply the gospel. How do we apply it? We avoid these people who are spewing out deceit and error, and we flee. And youthful passions there does not mean sexual lust, okay? That's typically what we think about. But what in context, what he's saying about youthful passions is hot-headedness, that, that argumentative spirit that I'm just going to get into this and just argue and argue and argue. Just get away from that kind of stuff. Friends, I mean, just looking at verse 16, 22, and 23, could you imagine if you avoided sin and false teaching and error half as much as you tried to avoid COVID-19, right? I mean, Paul, Paul's calling false, false doctrines. He says it's like gangrene, it's a disease. If we tried half as much to avoid error as we have tried to avoid COVID-19, this world would be like turned upside down, right? Like, so I was at Ralph's over there in Marguerite. Not just one face mask, two face masks, and a face shield. Okay, now I'm all for it. I'm all for it. If you got to do that, you got to do that. But I thought to myself, man, if we just put on Christ half as much as this person put on PPE to go to Ralph's, how awesome it would be. And the, statistically speaking, right, it's been a month since I looked at the numbers, but I'm, I'm sure they're the same or better. Statistically speaking, you have less than 1% chance of COVID-19. Statistically speaking, you have like 100% chance of sinning against God, others, and, and his creation, Shouldn't we put on the armor of God? Shouldn't we put on Christ half as much as we're vigilant to put on PPE? But do we? Guys, we got it upside down, right? We got this upside down. So Paul says, apply the gospel. What's interesting here, look at Timothy. So, so Paul then talks about how in a, in a great house, there's vessels of, of, of honor and dishonor, right? You see that in verses 21, 29. Again, Paul's talking about the church. That's the great house he's referring to, the God's church. One commentator says it this way, if Timothy wants to be a useful vessel for God, verse 21, he must cleanse himself by fleeing lusts, verse 22, pursuing righteousness and avoiding false teaching. Look, that all makes sense, but here's a phrase I love. It's the very end. Along with other believers, along with all those who call on the name of the Lord. Friends, not only do you individually need to give your full attention, your affections, and your application to the gospel, you need to do it in the context of a community of believers like the local church. It is not about just you doing it on your own. Paul says it. It's right there in 2 Timothy. Along with all who call on the name of the Lord, you cannot do it on your own. You need the encouragement of other people. Now, again, I'm going to unpack this a whole lot more in three weeks, but the, the, the foundation I'm laying now, the foundation I'm laying now 
is that the way we flourish in the Christian life is embracing the good news of the gospel emotionally, intellectually, and volitionally, our wills. So make sure you're, you're, make sure you're here in three weeks. I mean, come back next week for sure and the week after that. By the way, we have Don Smith next week. So Don Smith, if you don't know, was the senior pastor here for 25 years. So he's going to be preaching the word. He's going to continue our study in 2 Timothy. Um, but I'm going to circle around and talk about this issue um, in three weeks. Now, I need to end the sermon at this point. But I need to make one last brief point. Because if I don't make this last brief point... If I don't make this point, I'm actually undermining the very gospel itself that I'm trying to hold out to you because this is what your takeaway might be. Someone might ask you, well, how was church today? It was good. What'd you guys talk about? Well, basically how to be a better Christian. Oh, how do you do that? Well, avoid fake news or false teaching. Oh, how do you do that? Embrace the good news. Well, how do you do that? Just love God more with your emotions, intellect, and will, which, by the way, isn't necessarily wrong, right? Jesus says this when they said, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say in Matthew 22? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? So, so that's not inherently wrong, but if we're honest, we don't. If we're honest, we do not love God with our affections, our intellect, and the applica- our volitions as we should. And if we're painfully honest, we often realize that we can't. At least until we realize something very important by placing what Paul writes here into the larger context of Scripture's message. And that's the last point I want to make. In our text... Paul is addressing Timothy using a very common term for someone who serves the Lord. You see it right there in in verse 24, and the Lord's servant, right? Um, Paul's using a term that describes anyone who serves the Lord, verse 24, and that can be anyone, as verse 21 reminds us. That can even be if you came in here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be a servant of the Lord. If what I say in the next two minutes makes sense to you, if it resonates with you, if you want to accept that, if you buy into that, you yourself can be a servant of the Lord. The point I'm getting at is Paul's using this kind of generic term, the Lord's servant, but if you're also familiar with your Old Testament, you know that that's also a, a, a technical term, isn't it? As in, the servant, the true servant of the Lord. In all through the Bible, there was supposed to be a servant of the Lord. The nation of Israel is called the servant of the Lord. Moses was called the servant of the Lord. Abraham was called the servant of the Lord. And every one of them failed to do what the Lord wanted. And so while it's a generic term, it also refers to the actual servant of the Lord. And Paul's point here, as we conclude in these last couple of verses in verse 24 to 26, is to help us in dealing with people who are ensnared by, by, by false teaching, people who are gripped by, by spurious gospels. Let me read what he says briefly, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth and come to their senses, and they may escape, may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul is trying to help Timothy in some very practical pastoral wisdom. But he's also reminding us that this is exactly, this is exactly what the true servant of the Lord has already done for you if you are a Christian. 
Friends, if you are willing to admit, if you're willing to recognize, if you're willing to realize that you were in the snare of the devil, that it was you that was captured by him and walking in darkness, doing his will, that you were in fact the opponent that God needed correcting, that it is the kindness of God in Jesus Christ who endured our foolishness, who patiently endures your evil. And it was his mercy to grant you repentance so that you could come to your senses and escape the consequence of sin, which is death. If you realize that you were the one, you are the one that's quarrelsome. If you realize that you are the disease, that you are the one that truly needed to be rescued because you were captured, and it is the gospel that abolishes death and promises you life both now and forever. If you get that, well, it's not far a step to say, why would I ever I want to give my emotions, my intellect, my will to anything else but the Lord Jesus Christ and to his gospel. Friends, nothing deserves your affections, your attention, and the application to your life like the good news of the gospel of grace. Why would you even want to give your heart, your soul, your mind to anything else than the one who sets us free? Not because we have to, but because we get to. You see, understanding the good news that when we're reading this, Paul is talking about how we deal with others, but he's also reminding us this is exactly what God did to you. When you realize this, that makes you able to buy into the good news, to trust the good news, and run from any fake news, even the ones that promises you the world. This is what I mean about stoking our affections for the gospel. This is what I mean about thinking about what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this is what I mean about wanting to live for his glory. It's not just us telling ourselves to do it, but remembering this is exactly what he did for us. Next week, when Pastor Don's with us, he's going to talk about how he's going to build on what I'm talking about. Because it gets gets even worse before it gets better. How do you like that for good news? (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for the hard truth. And Lord, where we live, where, where we are, where the, the place and time we inhabit, it's hard to believe we live in such a fundamentally broken uh, uh, world. But Lord, we don't have to look far. Father, that, that isn't to guilt us into more. That ought to lead us into gratitude for your goodness and a recognition that we have the opportunity, the time, the resources, the ability to make a difference. So, Father, we pray, we pray particularly for those of us who do, who are suffering as a direct result of the gospel. Father, for those who really don't want to train anymore, they're tired. For those who don't want to work, Father, would you help us? Would you, by your Spirit, reinvigorate our hearts as we remember the gospel? And, Lord, that remembering gives us a desire to pursue righteousness, faith, love, along with all your people. We thank you that we are the inheritors of 2,000 years of men and women doing the same. We pray, Lord, we be faithful if you would tarry another 2,000 more in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.